Good to see all of you this evening. Hope you've had a good day. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to begin something tonight. I really didn't know where to begin uh, because we want to keep things biblical and scriptural. I'd like to get into some areas, but I may not be able to do it. It may take me tonight to introduce this to you and get into it next week. Matthew chapter 24. Right where we were Sunday, verse 3, as he sat, as the Lord Jesus sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately and said, Tell us when should these things be? He had told them that not one stone would be left upon another in the temple. When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and end of the world, literally the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And may the Lord add his blessings to his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful through our Lord Jesus Christ for this place of worship. Thank you for bringing us together. Pray that you give us an understanding we may understand something of the times that we're in and uh, that we might be pressed out of our own comfort zones to be concerned about our brothers and sisters, our children, our neighbors in the coming years that we're given here, that they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our salvation. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now, a great, a great time of, of deception is now beginning, I believe, to come upon the world. Uh, many false uh, messiahs are appearing as we approach what could be, and you've heard me say, the end of the human history, and I've said for years and years and years that Hebrews chapter 1 says, that the last days began with the birth of the Messiah, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I believe when our Lord said here, uh, I spoke here about these false messiahs, I think he was thinking of more than just false teachers within the Christian fold. Our view has been looking at teachers that are within Christendom, or uh, that profess to be Christians, and we, we talk about the heresy or the teachings that they are teaching. But I think the Lord, uh, and I think hopefully I can make this, uh, you can see what I'm talking about here. I think the Lord broadened the scope here. For example, when you read Acts chapter 2, let's turn over to Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts, chapter 2. It's called Acts because it's the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles, the actions, how they went about carrying out the orders of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
Then he said, baptize those who believe. And then he said, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so we focus many, many times on uh, those teachers within churches that profess to be Christians. But I want to ask you this question. When we get to Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, verse 1 of Acts chapter 2, I'm assuming that all of you know that Pentecost is not just a charismatic or Pentecostal. It is a Jewish holiday. Pentecost is something that occurred 50, Penta, 50 days after the Passover. It was a Jewish feast. And so all of the Jews were making a trek to Jerusalem for the celebration of all of these festivities that lasted a month or so. And so this is when uh, the phenomenon that we normally call the speaking of tongues, when the Holy Spirit came in power, as the, as the uh, Lord said he would, and we listed here, uh, it's very clear, in my opinion, very clear, that this is not a gibberish language. You know what I mean by gibberish. I'm not making fun of any of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, but I often tell a story about a man who was in Mexico, and he was on a Honda motorcycle, and uh, he went inside a store. When he came out, his motorcycle was gone. And Americans always think that people in other countries should understand what they're saying. And so he thought maybe he was speaking a little bit of Spanish, and he ran into this building to report that his, his Honda had been uh, stolen. And he didn't realize that he was running into a Pentecostal church. And when he ran in there, he said, someone stole a Honda, someone stole a Honda. And they said revival broke out in that church. Now, that's gibberish, and that's not what I'm talking about. It's very, very clear here that this was the ability of people to speak another language that they hadn't studied. That this language has an alphabet, that it has verbs and nouns and adjectives and adverbs and infinitives and all the other things that we have in a language. It lists, verse 8, verse 8, how do we hear every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And it lists these people. I think it's 19 of them. Uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, goes all the way down to verse 11. Cretes and Arabians, do we hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God? They were all amazed. They wondered, what in the world does this mean? Then Peter stands up. He takes advantage of this to bear witness of Christ in the gospel. And this is very important. It's not just what they were doing. Usually the focus is on tongues. It's what they said with those tongues. What did they say? Well, they told them about Jesus. They told them about the Messiah has come. that has been promised since Genesis 3.15 in the Garden of Eden. So he stands up and he says, these are not drunken, verse 15. This is only the third hour of the day. That is, it's nine o'clock in the morning. From 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock. But this is that, verse 16, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, or Joel. Now, 
Then he says, he quotes a little bit of it, it shall come to pass. Now you might have a note in your Bible that says that's from Joel chapter 2. It, shall, it came to pass, says God, I will pour out my spirit, or pour out of my spirit, upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see, see visions, visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. All right, let's stop there. Now that's, that's being fulfilled there, isn't it, in Acts chapter 2. But what does he say next? He says, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Is that happening? The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon shall be turned to blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come. Now the sun is not turned to darkness and the moon's not turned to blood in this chapter. That's because that prophecy of Joel has more to do than just what's happening here. It encompasses the last days. And in the last days you will have cataclysmic events in the earth and in the heavens. And you're going to have all kinds of chaos and things happening in this earth before the great and notable day of the Lord come. But that prophecy of Joel spans more than just one event at the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. It, it encompasses a lot of years in history, including the last days. If you go back and read Daniel chapter 8 and those chapters, and you read certain chapters in the book of Revelation, you're going to find out that what he says here is said by John and by Daniel that that's going to happen. But it doesn't happen here in Acts chapter 2. So my point is, you don't have to go back to Matthew 24, but my point is that when Jesus says false messiahs, he's talking about more than just some preachers and teachers that we think are teaching error. I don't know how much error people can teach and still be children of God. I would ima imagine that it's not just the error, but it's what they say about Christ. What kind of Christ are they talking about? What kind of God are they talking about? What kind of gospel are they talking about? And if we can get far enough, we'll look at some of those passages that have to do with that. So when Jesus speaks of false messiahs, he might have been thinking about a political messiah, he might be thinking about an economic messiah, somebody that says, I, I know how to straighten up the economy. I know how to save us all. We need that now in the United States, don't we? It was said today when we men fellowship together, uh, together while the ladies were over here, that the United States indebtedness right now is more than all the money in the world. We owe more than all the money in the world owed by all the nations, if I understood that correctly. The, the Messiah, you could have a political Messiah, an economic Messiah, a social Messiah, an educational Messiah. After all, if we believe that the Antichrist, the Antichrist, not just those who are Antichrist, as 1 John tells us, when he wrote, he said, even now there are many Antichrists in the world. But if we believe the Antichrist, that there will be a man or a group of people who will be Antichrist according to the Scripture, he's going to be master in all of these things. He's going to be a master politician, a master economist, and a social 
organizer and an educational. He's going to be all of these and more. So although there have been men and religious movements from time to time over the years, over the centuries, which have claimed to be our saviors, most of them, in my opinion, have made little or no lasting impact upon the world and upon the Christian world. So to the point that many people just say, well, that's what these Christians have been saying. They've been saying that for centuries, Antichrist. They thought that um, Mussolini was an Antichrist. They thought that Hitler was Antichrist. They thought that uh, somebody like Stalin was Antichrist. I remember when, uh, who, who is the Jewish fellow that's still living that was our foreign ambassador? Can't remember his name. Huh? Say it loudly. Who is talking? Kissinger. Yeah, Kissinger. I, I, Kissinger, I heard, thank you, Linda. I heard that Kissinger was uh, going to be an Antichrist. Well, so far, uh, he's not, he's not a, a believer. He's not a Christian. That He's about 90 years old. But he hasn't, uh, he hasn't saved the world or, or deluded us. So all of that has come and gone. But, and hear me well here, in Islam, which is the fastest growing religion in the world, and it is the newest religion in the world, we are faced with a man that almost two billion souls confess as God's unique spokesman. And he is God's last prophet. And I'm thinking, of course, of Muhammad. Muhammad was born in 570 A.D. in Mecca, which is in modern-day uh, Saudi Arabia. And he is thought to have died around 632 A.D., in Medina, which is also in modern Saudi Arabia, just north of Mecca. And interestingly enough, Medina developed from an oasis settled by the Jews around 135 A.D. So Muhammad was born some 600 years after our Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning of Islam is said to have been around 610 A.D., following the first revelation to the prophet Muhammad at the age of 40. He and his followers spread the teachings of Islam throughout the Arabian uh, Peninsula. There are two major denominations of Muslims. You probably know this, but let's just... Make sure we've got this board. We've got the Sunnis, and the others are the Shiites, or the Shias. And these are two groups, major groups. There are others uh, in, in Islam. Now, according to my research, uh, the Sunnis make up 87 to 90% of all Muslims, and the Shiites about 10 to 13 percent. The Sunni are said to have developed from Muhammad's inner circle, but the Shiites claim their leaders are direct descendants of Muhammad. Of course, the Shiites are the, most, the more radical. 
Now you can buy, in fact, I meant to bring it tonight. You remember when they had that little uh, series of books, so-and-so-and-so for idiots, theology for idiots, Christi well, as you can buy the Koran for idiots. It's written by two people who are Sunnis, and so when you read that, you wouldn't see anything in it to be alarmed about. But the rise that we're seeing today is not really with the Sunnis. My dad, uh, as I shared with these men today, my dad did not like to travel. He was a homebody. But his boss talked him into, as a reward for the work my dad had done, taking a trip literally around the world. And when my dad returned from that trip, uh, it took like a month. They went to all kind of countries. When he came back, the people he was most impressed with uh, were the people of Iran. And that's when the Shah of Iran was still running Iran before the revolution in 1979 when the Ayatollah Khomeini brought in radical Islam. And he said that they were the most beautiful people he had ever seen in his life, men and women. He said that their skin and all of that was just absolutely stunning. The Sunni branch of Islam stipulate that a caliph, C-A-L-I-P-H, hope you can read my writing, that a caliph should be elected by Muslims or their representatives. The Shiites believe that a caliph should be an imam, and I'm going to tell you what all these are in just a moment, chosen by God for, uh, from the household of the prophet. Now, what is an imam? I-M-A-M. An imam is, is a teacher, a leader in Islam. When you see those things on the news and see them all bowing down and there's somebody calling them to prayer, that's an imam. He leads daily prayers. He teaches the people about the Quran, which is the Muslim Bible, holy book. And he teaches them about the life of the prophet Muhammad, very much like a minister or a pastor would be. They also officiate at weddings and funerals and they develop and oversee youth programs at the mosque. The term imam has been used as a title of various Muslim leaders, especially of one succeeding Muhammad as leader of the Shiite Islam. Now the Shiites believe that Muhammad chose the first imam. And the first imam was uh, his son-in-law. His name was Ali. Now, you remember Cassius Clay? You remember he changed his name to Muhammad Ali. That's why. That's a very important name in Islam. The second and the third imams were Ali's two sons. And the Shiites believed that divinely inspired descendants followed them, each chosen by the previous imam. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds a little bit like the Roman Catholic Church, doesn't it? You have a pope and you have another pope and that's supposed to be God's man. The Shiites or the Shia Muslims believe Listen to this, that imams, and this is from the Quran now. I'm not just making this up. They believe, the Shiites believe that the imams are 
inspired by God. Number two, that they are without sin. Number three, that they are infallible, which means that they can interpret the teachings of the Quran. The highest imam is called the grand imam. Now, on the other hand, the Sunnis teach that a man named Abu Bakr, who was Muhammad's father-in-law, the Sunnis teach that he was selected to be Muhammad's successor. That is, that he was the first caliph. So you can see right away there's an uh, argument between the Sunnis and the Shias, or the Shiites. The first man to accept Islam was this fellow, Abu Bakr. And he was the first caliph according to the uh, Sunnis. He was Muhammad's closest companion and advisor. He succeeded to the prophet's political and administrative functions, and he initiated the office of the caliph. Now, the caliph is the chief Muslim civil and religious ruler. And the term caliph in Arabic is generally regarded to mean, quote, successor of the prophet Muhammad. The caliphate, you've heard these terms, I'm sure, on TV, the caliphate uh, denotes the office of the political leader of the Muslim community or the Muslim state. The caliph ruled in Baghdad until 1258 and then in Egypt until the Ottoman Empire conquest in 1517. You know how long the Ottoman Empire lasted? It lasted until Hitler arose over 500 years. And the Ottoman Empire was by and in large Islam. It was Muslim. There are around 50 Muslim majority countries in the world. In other words, there are 50 countries and the majority of the people in those countries are Muslims. The largest population is in Indonesia, which is home to over 12% of the world's Muslim population. About 20% of Muslims live in the Arab world and in the Middle East, in Iran, in Turkey. Those are the largest Muslim majority countries, but Egypt and Nigeria are right behind them. Now the West, where we live, is now experiencing an invasion of Islam. Mosques are springing up everywhere. There are several mosques in Nashville. I remember years ago, Lynn, you will remember this, we were going to Detroit and we got about 40, 50 miles out of Detroit, and we came over a rise in the road, and all of a sudden, right there was this huge mosque that cost millions and millions of dollars with a gold dome on it, like you see of the Mosque of Omar, which is over in Jerusalem. Their mosques are being built. I know there's one, I've read about one or two in Murfreesboro. I don't know where it is over there. But when I saw that mosque, as, as we were, came over that road and it was there, I felt like I had been transported into another part of the world. Now, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet, 
That is the great confession of faithful Muslims around the world, the Shahada, they call it. That's their confession. There's no God but Allah. A lot of it translates this way. There's no God but God. And Muhammad is his prophet. Now, Muslims are monotheistic. What does that mean? It means they believe in one God. But they believe in one absolute God. Now, I'll tell you later, probably not in this study, what's wrong with that. We have a God who is one but in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I've explained to you before why I don't use the word Trinity. Many uh, of my Christian brothers and teachers don't find a problem with it, and that's quite all right. The reason I don't like it is because it's not in the Bible. <laughs> and because Trinity implies three, either way you look at it. The Bible talks about the Godhead, but beyond that, the actual Hebrew where it says we have one Lord, one God, hero Israel, the Lord is one. That language itself, part of that is in the plural. We have one God, but he is more than one person. So Muslims are monotheistic. They trace Abraham back as their father. So today we're beginning to have problems with other, another figure in Islam, and that figure would be the name Jesus. How many of you have heard of Brian McLaren? Have you ever heard of Brian McLaren? Brian McLaren, who is an emerging church fellow, in his book, The Secret Message of Jesus, says this, quote, All Muslims regard Jesus as a great prophet. A shared reappraisal of Jesus' message could provide a common ground for urgently needed religious dialogue. This reappraisal of Jesus may be our only way of saving a number of religions, including Christianity. End of quote. Now what McLaren is saying is this, if we want to save Christianity and other religions, we need to get together. And this ought to be easy to do because the Muslims in the Quran mention Jesus. How many of you have heard of uh, Tony Campolo? Okay. He says, quote, When we listen to the Muslim mystics as they talk about Jesus and their love for Jesus, I must say it's a lot closer to New Testament Christianity than a lot of Christians. End the quote. Okay, what did Paul say? Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> All right. Uh, verse 4. If he that comes preaches another Jesus... I thought there was just one. Well, you thought wrong. Another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which you have not received, or another gospel, which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. Now, he's talking to these Corinthians about being 
deceived by the devil. If you notice in verse 3, I, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So I said earlier, yes, we're concerned about the Jesus that anybody preaches in a church. We're concerned about that. But I believe that the, the spectrum of the false messiah is broadened I believe it's more than just those in the church, and I think we're going to begin to see that in our lifetime if, if we live just a little bit longer. Paul attributes the gospel and the spirit of another Jesus to false teachers inspired, if you look at verse 14 and 15, by demonic spirits. Verse 14 and 15. He says, verse 13, such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, or of the Christ. No marvel, no big deal, no surprise, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. So he attributes this false gospel to demon spirits, to the devil. Galatians chapter 1, I'll read this to you. you can, I'll tell you where it is. It's Galatians chapter 1 beginning in verse 8. Where Paul says to preach another gospel is to be cursed. Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Galatians 1 verse 8 and now verse 9, as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. So here's the question, is the Muslim Jesus the same Jesus as the Jesus in the New Testament? The Muslim Jesus is described in the Quran by the Muslims themselves. And the Muslim Jesus plays a crucial role in Islamic eschatology. You know, eschatology is prophecy or the last days, the last things, the doctrine of last things leading to the end of the world. Now, there are three sources of truth for Islam. There are three foundations that Muslims stand on. First, there is the Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A-H, the Sunnah, okay? Now, the Sunnah means habitual practice, the manner of acting. It's the body of traditional social and legal customs and practices in the Islamic community. It's how you live if you're a good Muslim. The second one is the Quran, which is their Bible. Okay. Uh, believe it or not, in this book, the Quran for Idiots, they spelled it like we normally would, with a K, but it's better with a Q. The Quran is the holy book of of uh, Islam, and then there's the Hadith, H-A-D-I-T-H, Hadith, and that's the recorded 
sayings of the prophet Muhammad, this thing that he actually said, okay? So these are the three foundations uh, for the uh, whole religion of, of Islam. So according to the Quran, the word of Allah and the Sunnah, which are the very works and words of the Prophet Muhammad, sometimes called the Hadith, the recorded sayings, the authority that they have is grounded. Now that sounds a lot like other things. I could mention the Roman Catholic Church. Where does the Roman Catholic Church get its authority? Well, it comes from the Bible plus what the church says, which is what the Pope says. In tradition, then the Mormon church, you got the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Then Jehovah's Witnesses, you got the Bible and you got the seven volumes called Studies in the Scriptures, written by Charles Taze Russell. He wrote six of them, and then he passed away, and Judge Rutherford wrote the seventh. And they don't tell you when you become part of the Jehovah's Witnesses, but they're interpreting the Bible by studies in the scriptures. And then you've got the Christian science. You've got the Bible and the writings of Ellen G. White and all these things. You've got Judaism. What is Judaism? You remember when the Lord Jesus Christ was walking through a field one day and his disciples broke off some corn and started eating and the Pharisees said, hey, why do you let your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? They're eating this corn and not even washing their hands. And the Lord Jesus said, why do you transgress the word of God by your traditions? That's exactly what he said. If you read enough about the Lord, you'll understand why they hated him so much. Because he really scalded them. If we did that today, nobody would listen to us. In Matthew chapter 23, he called them hypocrites every other verse. He said, you generation of vipers, how will you escape the damnation of hell? You, you, you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when you make him, you make him twofold more the child of hell than you are. That's what Jesus said there. That's the one that we don't want to hear anything bad about what Jesus said today. He's just 99 and 44, 100% pure love. And let me tell you, he's, he's love all right, and he loved his father, and he's going to honor his father. All right, now listen to me. You'll be interested in this. According to the Quran, this is all out of the Quran. I'm not telling you what I thought. Number one, Jesus was only a man, not divine. Right away, that's the real problem. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Same as in the beginning with God. Did you know that a lot of times, uh, John 1, 14, and the Word was made flesh, do you realize that in some of the old manuscripts, they translated that, and God was made flesh? He's the only God that has come into the flesh and become a man. That's who our Savior is. Jesus, according to the Quran, was only a man. Number two, he was a prophet. They do say that Jesus was a prophet. Number three, they said he did not die on the cross, but he went to heaven like Elijah. 
Number four, because he did not die on the cross, he did not rise from the dead. Because after all, only a dead man could rise from the dead. Number five, because he did not die, he did not provide an atonement. Number six, he is in heaven right now, standing before Allah and beside Elijah. Remember how Elijah was caught up to heaven? Okay, people still fuss and fight and argue about Elijah and Enoch. They still fight about that. They say, well, you know, they're going to come back here again. They're going to be the two prophets in the book of Revelation, and they're going to have to die because they didn't die then. I don't know anything about that. And I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> but they say Jesus, the Jesus of the Quran is in heaven right now standing before Allah and beside Elijah. Number seven. They said Jesus is in heaven waiting for Allah to send him back to the earth. Now you might say, well, why is he coming back to the earth? So they do believe in a second coming. Okay? Why is he coming back to the earth? He's coming back, this is number eight, he's coming back to the earth to straighten us all out, to straighten the Christians and the Jews out regarding Allah and Muhammad as well as who he really is. He is not God in the flesh, according to the Quran. He's just a man. He's a prophet. He's an important prophet. But they say, number nine, after he returns, he's going to marry. He's going to have children. He's going to die. And he's going to be buried next to Muhammad. Now that's the Muslim, that's the Muslim Jesus. Okay? Now, the first man who will come in the end of the world is the Mahdi. Now, see if I, how much of this I can get into tonight. The Muslim eschatology, Muslims have an eschatology like we do. You know, we've got people who say, well, it's pre-mill. You know, millennium. The millennium is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. So people fuss and fight about that. They say, well, he, he came in back and then he's going to reign for a thousand years. Other people say thousand years is just a general term. It won't really be a thousand years. It won't be a millennial. Then they fuss about the uh, tribulation. Will the saints of God go through the tribulation? Will they be raptured out of the tribulation? Will he come at the end of the tribulation? Well, the Muslims have an eschatology too, and their eschatology stands upon three men, which are the three great signs. Mahdi is M-A, make sure I spell it right, M-A-H-D-I, M-A-H-D-I, okay? The Mahdi is the first man who will come, he'll be the first sign, he's the first man who will come in the end of history. And here I'm quoting this, quote, a messianic deliverer, who will fill the earth with justice and equity, who will restore the true religion and usher in a short golden age lasting seven years. Where have you heard that seven years before? Now that's the time of the tribulation, divided into three and a half and three and a half, right? Now what does it mean when it says he will come and fill the earth with justice and equity? 
It means, as I'm going to tell you next time, because we're out of time, <laughs> it means that he is going to destroy everyone who has not converted to Islam. Establishing justice means that you carry out justice on all the inhabitants of the earth who have not submitted to Muhammad. What does Islam, what does that word Islam mean? It means submission. The word defi is defined as submission. So when you're a Muslim, you are in submission to uh, Allah. So next time we'll look at these three men that signal the end of the, of the age, and you're going to be shocked when you hear what this man is going to be an exact representation of. So I hope you'll come back and study with us then. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we believe to be the only true Messiah, substantiated by those who were with him night and day, who saw him privately, who heard what he taught, who saw him perform miracles, and who gave their lives rather than deny that they were with him after he arose from the dead. We have so many miracles, so many witnesses of those miracles, and we stand believing the Word of God, which was over a half, a, a thousand years, half of a millennia before Muhammad was ever born. We ask you, Father, to help us to understand. We pray for the Muslims that they will be saved, that they will be converted and come to a knowledge of the true Messiah, even our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, for whose sake we ask these things. Amen.